Welcome to episode 88 of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. I'm your host, John S. Today we'll speak with Life J, a friend of both AA Beyond Belief and AA Agnostica. Life has written several articles for both sites and was also published in The Grapevine. Life will share his story with us and we'll talk about the Sinclair Method, his thoughts on recovery, his thoughts about AA, present and future, what he thinks about secular AA, the use and limitation of technology, and a need for improved networking among secular AAs. How you doing, Life? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. Sunny day here for a change. Yeah, I'm doing good. Well, it's really nice of you to agree to join us. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time. Uh, You're an important voice in the secular AA community, and you've done a lot for AA Beyond Belief and AA Agnostica with all of your great writing, and um, there's just so much that you have to offer with your um, ideas and your experience. So I really have been looking forward to this. I'm wondering, Life, if you wouldn't mind too much just giving us a little bit of background and, you know, what finally happened that convinced you that you needed help with uh, drug and alcohol addiction or either. And uh, then we'll kind of just go into your AA story a little bit and take it from there. My life was just uh, coming apart. Uh, I wasn't doing much other than drinking. I had a room down in my basement uh, where nobody could see whether I was home or not. And uh, I would sit down there and uh, drink and smoke uh, the evening and the night away and uh, uh, sometimes make it to work and sometimes not. You know, once you can't work anymore, things start going going downhill pretty fast. You know, the bills won't get paid, lose the place to live and all of that stuff. And I just barely averted that happening. And about how long ago was that? Well, I I, uh, I had a I had a back problem. You know, I was working as a contractor at the time, and and uh, there was a time there about a half a year before I quit. I was working for some really wonderful people, and and the uh, the uh, the guy happened to be an orthopedist. So I asked him if he wouldn't mind taking taking a look at my back. I didn't have any health insurance. Mm-hmm. He took me and set me down at the dining table. Him and his wife were sitting there. And so first thing he asked me is, have you ever drank too much? And uh, thought about that for a minute. Of course, everybody drank <laughs> one time or another, right? So as I was think- sitting there thinking about what to answer, he says, well, have you ever been wasted for weeks on end? And, and for that, I, I said, no, no. <laughs> so, uh, so he said, all right, let's go take a look at that bag. Obviously, the reason he asked me that question was you could see I was in the middle of being wasted for weeks mm-hmm. on him. I had a lot of respect for this guy, so uh, that started making me think that maybe there was a problem. Uh, so he sent me down to Highland Hospital. That's a big public hospital in Oakland. And first thing the guy there asked me is, have you ever drank too much? And of course, by then, I, you know, I got smart enough to answer no right away, so I wouldn't get found out (laughs) you know how that goes but anyway so from that point on I stopped drinking every day I stopped drinking and I wasn't going to drink until well I wasn't 
Tomorrow I wasn't going to drink, but today I just need a couple of beers to relax. And that's the way it went every day until finally I woke up one morning and realized that. So I quit, and I quit on my own. And just the absence of the atrocious hangovers was enough to to uh, to to make it to make it okay. Yeah, you know, I don't remember having DTs and stuff. You know, I just uh, you know, it was just okay. Mm-hmm. You know, but uh, you know, about five months later, I realized I was going to drink again if I did, if I didn't get some help. So that's when I started going to AA. So, yeah, my thirtieth birthday was actually last Tuesday. Oh, congratulations! And now you grew up in Denmark, is that right? Yes, I did, and that's a that's a drinking country, you know. <laughs> it, it, uh, we, uh, you know, when we were when we were big enough to walk the quarter mile down to the grocery <laughs> store, you know, people they would uh, have send us down to get beer. That's yeah. how it was. Yeah, yeah. and they didn't uh, really have like a drinking age or anything there, did they? No, I, I don't know if they do now, but it certainly uh-huh. isn't forced very much. But you know, we could go out and drink when we were fifteen. You know, yeah, I think it was that way. Uh, I I lived in the Netherlands as a kid, and my uh, older brother and sister they were teenagers, and uh, they tell me, yeah, I don't think there was actually any kind of a drinking age or anything at that time, anyway. But it's also a very secular country, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. That's uh, yes and no. It's mm. a funny situation because. Denmark has state religion, but um, being as that everybody is a member, it also means that nobody really cares that much. <laughs> you know, you, you, you're just a member, right? Right. As kids, we had to uh, we had to endure a couple of uh, really religious teachers. Of course, we have religion taught in schools, even though it's not like a Catholic school here necessarily or anything. But but it just so happened that our teachers were quite religious, and we prayed, and they told oh, us wow. about stories in first class and you know all that kind of stuff we had we had uh, religious education all the way up until confirmation which is 14 right okay. to, you didn't have to participate anymore so were you ever did you ever have theistic beliefs at all i think i became a non-believer around the age of eight my grandmother was a very religious person she she was not the kind who would push it on you, but she did have me pray at night, you know, when I was going to bed and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I had a crucifix hanging over my bed. And, you know, I was getting beat up in school a lot at the time, and and uh, I just looked up at that thing and said, "There's no way I can believe in this stuff." Uh, so, so I endured it for the next five, what, six, seven years or whatever. So then you find yourself in the States and you're working and you're, um, you, you begin having a problem with alcohol that you recognize and you start going to AA. How did you reconcile the religious nature with AA, of a, in AA with your non-belief? And did it present a problem when you were first starting out? It did, but, uh, you know, I was, I was desperate enough to have help and, you know, counseling and other things were out because I didn't have any money. So, um, so I kept going to AA and, you know, I was actually lucky very early on in AA. I found a meeting in Berkeley called the humanist meeting, mm-hmm. which was just happening once a week. Uh, there we weren't religious, at least, you know, even the Berkeley fellowship, the, you know, it's Berkeley, you know, people aren't overly religious there, you know, and there's a couple of people that are, and of course they read how it works and all that stuff, but it, it wasn't emphasized, you know, and, and uh, there were very few meetings that ended with the Lord's Prayer and all that. So it wasn't too bad. But then um, the part of the state that you live now is more of a rural area, and is it a little bit different? 
it's not all that different. You know, Northern California is one of the more liberal parts of California. When I first got to this little town, there were five people. There was an old guy who was really kind of our spiritual lighthouse. He was sober about the same amount of time as me. And then there was a couple of people sitting and complaining about the DUI and the cop. You know, there wasn't much going on here. And, uh, I showed up and and uh, I just started going to every meeting there was, and just, you know, another body of somebody who actually was sober was enough to really start changing things, you know. So from five people back back there 15 years ago to now, we have uh, a Tuesday meeting, there's 20 people, 25 or something like that. And, uh, it's actually pretty good here now. We don't do the Lord's Prayer, mm -hmm. that was Somebody was suggesting that we brought it back, and I just had a shit fit. And, Didn't you uh, at one time start a secular meeting over there? Yes, I did. And uh, it never really came off the ground because it's a little bitty town out in the middle of nowhere. There's just not enough people for it. But, yeah. you know, there'd usually be one or two other people. And, and uh, here at the beginning of, of, of the winter, I had to shut it down, whether it's temporary or, or for good. I don't know. But... Uh, you know, being being as that I have cancer and all, it's just really difficult for me to go out and sit in the cold and and, sure. and, and all that and get the meeting started. So, but so, you also but, had a problem with your central office not listing the meeting too, didn't you? That was a real problem. Yeah, yeah we we fought bitterly for about ten months and and eventually I just let it go and just started the meeting and mm -hmm. and uh, a couple of years later when. When the people had cycled cycled out, I went back, and uh, it wasn't the problem then. So okay. just, what was their initial objection? That we weren't going to do the steps the way they were in the big book. And eventually, I just decided we we don't even really need to do the steps. You know, we just we just sit and talk one alcoholic to another, and. Uh, we'll find whatever readings we want to read, and, and if they don't like us reading the reading the wrong steps, and we just don't read any. Now, that, that's, that's worked all right. And, and, and in fact, I think that the, the steps, if we keep on reading the steps as the 12 steps, it doesn't really matter whether we have alternative steps or what it is. It's all just going to be this thing that you have to have 12 steps. And, I know. And, I thought that was funny. I think, did you just post a comment about that, I think, or did someone else that said... Um, why is it always twelve? <laughs> yeah, I think that was. Me. And and, and uh, so uh, what I what I did do is I I did a little longhand piece or what's it? No, not longhand, but a, a uh, little piece of prose where we just read all the twelve steps together right. as, as one piece. It's kind of the uh, kind of the opposite process of the of the twelve right. promises. Right? Yeah. I did the same thing actually. I, I, uh, some time ago, I wrote a piece that Roger actually published about, I, I called it How It Works 2.0. And I wrote, I basically went through the steps as a paragraph, you know, not as a linear progression of a list, but just as, as things that we've experienced, you know, in one yeah. way or another. And, um, that's just a, 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 I think a different way of looking at it. It doesn't have to be a list of things. Um, but I know that it was 12 because Bill, Wilson wanted, thought that was a magical number because of 12 apostles and so forth, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. When, when did you finally learn about secular agnostic AA meetings and how did you get in touch with Roger at AA Agnostic and, and get involved with writing for his site and so forth? 
I can't remember exactly how it happened. I guess I just sat down and, and, and searched for it one time and, and uh, found the Rogers site, the Agnostic Inn. Got really blown away by all, all the articles there and I, I must have written to him and, 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 and checked in with him. I, I can't remember. My memory's not that good anymore. I'm getting real. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I know. Right, it must have been about 2012 or something like that. Okay. Okay. All this is kind of interesting. All of this is fairly recent history, um, but I wasn't really aware of that. In 2012, I was still going to my very traditional group, pounding on the big book. <laughs> so anyway, so you've done a lot of writing for Roger and so forth, and you've done a lot of writing for A Beyond Belief. Yeah, I, I started translating 20 years ago, and, and that's how I actually got got into the into the habit of just writing, you know, even though that's some dry technical stuff and all. Yeah, I, I started writing memoirs and things um, about oh, 10, 15 years ago, I guess, and just mm -hmm. little by little I've gotten into doing more writing, and so, uh, you know, coming into into agnostica and starting to write there it's uh now it's something i'm actually spending my days with is writing in one way or another you know nothing nothing particularly great or profound but uh do you find uh, it helpful to write well it's not it's not necessarily all about uh, my own personal issues and stuff but mm -hmm. uh as far as aa goes i i haven't done much other writing than whatever you see on the internet right. there i don't sit down and, and do written inventories no. and stuff. Uh, you know, it, it always helps pull the brain together to be writing almost regardless of what writing about. I think it helps, and I think it helps other people because you're bringing information to people or you're making people think about different ideas that they might not think about otherwise. You have, like, some sort of an underlying philosophy of your recovery um, that, that you're able to reconcile your your understanding with the rest of AA. I wonder if you can kind of talk about that a little bit, Life. I mean, what? how do you see your recovery today? I mean, it's not traditional AA per se, but you haven't actually thrown AA out the window either. There's two million people helping each other there, you know, mm -hmm. and that's that's what we need to salvage is those two million people helping each other, the fellowship, the, the meetings, all of that, the, the place for an alcoholic to go. I think the program is terrible, uh, and it'd be nice to get rid of that. But we need the fellowship. We need we need the mutual help. That's that's Bill Wilson's great discovery that an alcoholic is most likely to trust another alcoholic if they want to quit drinking. But the program itself, as far as the steps and all that, it's not necessarily helpful. I don't think so. It's it uh, it's nice with the steps. When somebody comes in and wants to be sat down and be told what to do, right. you know, they say, here's 12 steps for you to work right. on. But uh, whether a person works those 12 steps or whether they work something else, I don't think it really matters. What matters is that they do something to change their life and their behavior and yes. their thought processes and, and all of that. Everything needs to change, but it doesn't have to be done with the 12 steps just like that. Yeah, I, I agree with that, too, actually. And, you know, it seems like there's a lot of people that do want that structure, I guess. I, maybe I needed it to a certain extent, but then there's a lot of people who balk at it. They absolutely can't stand it, especially when it's written in such doctrinaire language, like our an archaic language like ours are written. 
But you're also very interested in science and the newest methods of recovery. And you wrote an article for AA Beyond Belief that is the single most read article on our site. It, 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 I mean, I'll have to post the statistics, but thousands and thousands of people have read it. Plus, it's posted on um, our YouTube um, page because Lynn did the recording of it. And it just gets more hits than anything. But it's all about the Sinclair Method. I wonder if you could talk about the Sinclair Method. You know, let's start from the beginning. What is the Sinclair Method? What evidence is there that it works or doesn't work? And how do you see it, if you do see it, fitting in with AA? Well, it doesn't fit in with AA. <laughs> uh, no, we need all the help we can get. And Sinclair Method, it's an American doctor, uh, Sinclair, that actually moved to Finland and uh, started working over there because apparently they were way more open-minded over there to his methods than, than anywhere else. So uh, as far as I could tell, he's helped like 60, 70,000 people in the time that he was there. That's quite a bit. So uh, and, and they are starting to experiment with another one called Nalmafine, I think it is, everywhere in Europe at this point. And uh, actually in the U.S., the uh, naltrexone is approved for alcohol treatment, but the way it is approved here by the FDA is that you take that pill every day and you stop drinking. And that's exactly what Dr. Sinclair said. If you do it that way, it doesn't work. And I have a, I have a dear friend in the program here who's had a really hard time staying sober. And uh, and finally, I got her lined up with a, with a doctor nearby who was in the program and, and uh, asked if he would uh, care to try this with her. And, uh, and he prescribed it the FDA way, no matter how much I told him that uh, that's not the way to do it. Is it because legally they have to do it the FDA way or do you know why they do that? They don't have to do it that way. Any doctor is allowed to use the medication off-label. Uh, that's not really not really the issue. It, it's I don't know why why you would do it that way. Doctor here in our local clinic, she uh, she's quite interested and said she was going to experiment a little bit with it. But uh, I haven't really heard much about it. If she had us tried to do that or not. Well, the way it's supposed to work, the Sinclair method, the way that Dr. Sinclair devised it, the way that he believes it should be prescribed. And t correct me if I'm wrong, but you should take the um, naltrexone before you drink. Is it like an hour yeah. before you drink or something like that? And yeah. by doing that, chemically, it it blots the receptors that cause you to drink in excess. And what happens is over time, a lot of people, a good percentage of people, experience something um, they call what, an extinction, where um, they don't even want to drink for it's not even something they even think about wanting to do and a lot of a lot of people that use the Sinclair method some of them will just continue taking the pill and then drinking normally or some of them just eventually find entire um, abstinence yeah isn't is that how pretty much how it works that's that's how it looks like it works and and uh, yeah we got that it's that movie by uh, what's your name Claudia Christensen yeah it's, it seems to work. I uh, have not been able to personally get involved in the whole thing. You know, obviously no reason for me to get involved in it at this point myself. But uh, there's a lot of resistance in AA against this because they want you to uh, be completely abstinent. And I, you know, I think one of the reasons why doctors are hesitant to prescribe it in this way is that 
it's not very good for them legally to say, here's a pill. Now, you need to go out and drink more in order for it to work. You know, especially since when people first start taking the naltrexone, apparently they get way more drunk, physically more drunk, without having any pleasure. And so uh, after a couple of days, I guess it started subsiding, but uh, it does uh, have in it some risks of uh, drunken accidents and this idea. Because that's part of why why doctors are somewhat reluctant. Uh, But uh, a person could be doing this under some supervision by family and whatnot. I mean, there's ways to deal with it. You know, I'm glad that I learned about the Sinclair Method, and I'm going to learn more about it uh, because we're going to be having a podcast about it here pretty soon. I actually, uh, not in a meeting, but after a meeting, I was talking to somebody, and this was a couple years ago. And he was just having a really hard time staying sober, you know, and it just, it, and it was just really dangerous. And I said, have you ever heard of naltrexone? Have you ever heard of Sinclair method? And he never, ever had. And I said, you should check it out, you know, talk to your doctor about it. And I thought that was an entirely appropriate thing for me to do to yeah. give this guy this information that he didn't have otherwise. Of course, though, here in the States, you know, he went to the doctor and he did prescribe an naltrexone, but they do it completely different. It's done as a way to somehow it's supposed to curb your, craving or, or, or desire for alcohol. I don't know if that's true or not, but the people I've known in my group who have taken naltrexone and drank on it say that the, their experience drinking on naltrexone wasn't satisfying at all. You know, kind of interesting, I think. Yeah, it it's, uh, certainly has some promise. And, and uh, yeah, science may one day accomplish this, right? That's right. It, it already has accomplished it, and we just don't want to recognize it. So what happens, I wonder, if somebody decides, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to use the Sinclair method, but I'm also, I also need the support of um, people in AA because, you know, there's a lot that goes on with alcoholism that other people can't relate to. I mean, we have some, you know, we have some issues in our lives and only another alcoholic, as you said, will understand, you know, what we're dealing with. And it seems like, it should be possible for someone who says, you know what, I, I'm going to use the Sinclair method to treat my alcoholism, but I also want the fellowship with other alcoholics. And maybe someday in the future that will happen. Um, you know, there'll be people in AA meetings who will openly talk about being on the Sinclair method while um, working a program of recovery to help them with those other issues that come up, you know, as a result of their, their addiction. That would be a good thing. It's, and, and there's a lot of negative attitude in AA about that. It's just kind of funny. I mean, we don't put people down if they uh, go out and relapse a bit. I mean, there's a little frowning, but I mean, but basically uh, we welcome people uh, even when they go relapsing, but uh, we don't welcome a medication that helps them uh, cut down on their relapses. It's, and you know, even so. in our own secular community where where most of us are atheist uh, or agnostic and have a love for science there's also a resistance to it you know incorporating it at least within aa so i don't know how i feel about it i i think the way i i approach it is um if i think it might be helpful to somebody um after a meeting i, I will let them know about it and um you know i certainly think it holds some promise um, it's not for somebody like me, you know, who's been sober already for a long period of time, but it certainly might save a life. I, I, I often think it would have saved my brother-in-law's life 
if he would have known about it. We are trying to save lives, right? That that's the bottom that line. That seems to be that I mean, that that would be what we were trying to do. And there's uh, in AI, we say no, we don't want to save lives that way, uh, and that that's kind of a shame, you know, because because uh, it should be about damage control. You know, it's a way it's a way better situation if if a guy cuts back from drinking a case of beer to drinking two beers a day. Right. Doesn't necessarily fit with AA philosophy, but it saves his life. Maybe a few months down the road, he'll cut out those other two beers, and maybe he won't. But right. uh, but at least he gets uh, he gets his his mind and body in a clear enough state to where he can start looking at where is he going next. Right. I used to think like that as when I was uh, fairly new. I um, you know, I was amazed that I could be that I could not drink for like you know a week or a month or two months or whatever. And, um, I would, I'd go to meetings. I'd watch these people who had been sober for a year or two or whatever. And then they would relapse and they'd feel awful about it. And then they couldn't cel- continue celebrating their anniversary and so forth. And I used to think inside, I'd, I'd think to myself, well, heck, it's still, if you just drank once in the last, you know, three years, that's pretty damn good. Yeah. You know, you know considering what I was doing at the time, I thought that was pretty damn good. And it, the person should feel good about themselves. And I remember going up to one of the old tires and said, why do we, why do we make such a big deal about the number of years that we have? Why can't we just celebrate how long we've been in re- in recovery, regardless of whether or not we've been sober the, the entire time? Because that's, you know, a lot of people might relapse, but they learn something from it and they help other people from it. And it seems like it takes the stigma away. But anyway, the old timer says, oh, no, 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 we need to do it. Do it the way that we do it. <laughs> so whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but that's yeah. still kind of a question I ask myself sometimes. It's like, why do we make such a big deal about the number of days that we put together. I mean, it is it is something to feel good about, I guess. But on the other hand, if one does drink, it almost compounds the feeling of guilt you know, and the fear of coming back. It does. It does. And I think it keeps a lot of people from coming back. Speaking of that, I, I had one beer. That was, I don't know, about two and a half months after I got sober, something like that. Mm-hmm. And and. That's the best beer I ever had. I mean, <laughs> it's not not because it tasted good or anything. I can't remember if it did, but I hadn't really missed drinking, uh-huh. you know, but not that much anyway for, for that time. But but uh, having that one beer set up a craving like I had never had before. Oh wow! It uh, it it's it was all I could think about the next day and a half or right. so. Then it started subsiding a bit again. At every liquor store I drove by, there was steering uh, wheel started pulling, you know. Right. And so, so uh, I had never, I had never experienced craving because I had never had a situation that right. put restrictions on my drinking. I never knew that I that was actually physically addicted to this stuff, and, so, and that let me know that I was, you know. So, so I think that was the best beer I yeah. ever had. That makes sense. But, you know, I could, of course, just as easily have gone in and got myself a 12-pack and been off and running. Right. So let's talk um, a little bit about, I want to talk about um, what you think is the future of AA altogether, which I know is a huge topic, but if you can kind of talk about that a little bit, talk about the future of how secular AA fits into that picture, and then also talk about an idea that you have or that you feel that there's a need to improve the networking within a secular AA community. So tell us, first of all, how do you see the future of Alcoholics Anonymous? It depends on whether it can uh, get out of its 1938 framework, I guess. You know, I mean, AA will still 
keep existing, but I think it wasn't it Joe that said they'll be like uh, like the Mennonites, <laughs> relevant, right? And and uh, that there's a there's a lot of risk of that, of course. I mean, in in uh, in percentage of of the American population, that's already going downhill, even if in actual numbers it's pretty much maintaining. But uh, it it needs to open up. Yeah, it needs to get out of its 1938 philosophy, and it's. It's a very difficult situation because world service depends on sales of big books and other literature to uh, to keep functioning. And uh, how are we going to help world service keep functioning without depending on big book sales? Because as long as they're pushing big book sales everywhere, it's going to stay the same. And that's a real problem. But, um, you know what gets me about that from a business perspective, though? Okay, if you're AA World Services and you're a publisher, why are you only publishing one book? Wouldn't you want to come up with a different book? I mean, I think that if, if AA said, okay, guess what? We got a new improved big book for the 21st century. I think that would sell like hotcakes. I think you're right. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, but, but it's like a, a good business decision would be, okay, we're a publishing company. And we've got this book that was written in 1939, and we're going to just keep rolling out the same book all the time. Well, wait a second. Why, why don't you write a new book for the, for current people? I mean, keep the old book, but write another book, you know, sell that book and have it, a, have it, a, you know, based upon what we've learned in the meantime. It seems to me that would sell like crazy. And they're missing out on, on, <laughs> you know, money <laughs> if that's what they want. We are alcoholics, so we keep doing the same thing over and over and expect different results, right? Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, that would be a great idea, you know, and if, if, uh, if AA would actually start publishing, uh, uh, alternative books, that would, that would probably really make a change. Yep. I do. I think yeah. so. And it has to come from not just the grapevine and even the grapevine. I love what the, so the like the grapevine's going to have the atheist book and stuff. And that's really cool and everything. But there needs to be something that, in my opinion, if you're going to have a program of recovery and everything within this fellowship, then we need to update it, you know, and we need to have it presented in such a way that a secular person can accept it as well as a religious person. It should be something that's kind of neutral um, when it comes to belief and faith. And it should, you know, that's in my opinion. But anyway, who am I to say? So I agree with you. I think that AA will be around, but it depends how relevant put it that way how relevant it would be so what about secular aa how do you see that do you think it's a movement i think it is we you know we are we are pretty small of course but uh there's a lot of long-term recovery in there and uh it's it's so ludicrous that uh, there's people sitting in regular aa with 20 30 40 50 years sober that are that uh believe more in in Three years sober, Bill Wilson. They then they believe in themselves and and in 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 secular AAs that have been sober all that long time. You know, I mean, uh-huh. we, we know more than Bill Wilson yeah. knew, and, and and yet they they treat it like scripture. <laughs> so uh, you know, we have a lot to offer. You know, and and uh, it seems like most of the time, what people that that have been around for a long time they they have thought about things and especially those of us that are have been kind of on the outside because we have we have been ostracized we have had opportunities to really think about stuff and what is it that's wrong with AA it's a lot easier to figure out what's wrong with AA if you actually think there's something wrong with <laughs> it than if you don't think there's anything wrong with it right 
and uh, and so uh, we have a lot to offer AA. You know, it, mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of a lot of good thinking heads in in the agnostic community, and so uh, hopefully we will get to to have an influence on it in the long run. But you pointed out, and you submitted something to us, and I think I'll. Um um, if I still have a copy of it live, maybe you might want to send it to me. You wrote a piece about um, the need for improving how we network within the secular AA community. Uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit, what your thoughts are on that? What 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 is the need and what are the solutions? Well, we have horizontal communication and we have vertical communication, right? Mm -hmm. Vertical is that, you know, we, we come in and we, we read uh, articles on AA agnostic and AA unbound belief and do podcasts like this and uh, go to uh, to the XR website to find meetings, yeah, and all that. But uh, horizontally, we have no communication at all. I have driven to Sonoma County and to Berkeley and to San Francisco to talk with people and to meet people in the other agnostic meetings. I have actually driven three hours away and three hours back in order to go and meet these people. Because that's the only way I could meet them because, you know, we have uh, schedules of meetings, but there's no contact information. We need this really bad. I talked to the people at uh, Secular AA and, and they said, yeah, we can't give away people's, people's contact information. And, uh, and I say, no, I'm aware you can't do that without uh, having permission to do so. But, uh, you know, for one, you could get the permission. For another, there's ways of, uh, Sending an email to somebody without getting their information. You know, you do that on Craigslist and all the dating sites and whatnot all the time, right? That's, right. Uh, you know, that's very easy to do. It just needs to be set up. I met some resistance. I don't know if we've gotten past that or not, but, uh, uh we really need that. You know, we, the, uh, what was it about? Was that one year ago or two years ago? I think, I think it might have been two years ago. They had that uh, roundup up in Olympia, Washington. I drove up there, um, and uh, there was, you know, well, we were about 80, 90 people, and it was great. Mm -hmm. I'd have loved to do something like that here in in, uh, in Northern California, you know. And actually, I have I have done a, a local once a year little roundup here. It's uh, you know, it was always fairly small, but uh, here in my own place. And after I came out as an agnostic, it got even smaller. <laughs> but but it would be really nice to have a, a roundup here of Northern California secular and agnostic people. And it's simply not possible because we can't contact them. So it's like, um, you know, we have all this we have all this technology now and you know there's all kinds of different ways to use it i i i, I think i i get what you're saying it's like you know sure we have these facebook groups but you know facebook isn't always the best way to get to know somebody or to communicate or to let somebody know hey i'm i'm coming into your town do you have a meeting or can i you know meet you at some time or whatever there isn't any kind of one-on-one um, -on -one personal communication. You can you can go on the Secular AA website and you can find out where the meetings are, I guess, and click on them and drive there. But you want to have that personal connection. You want to be able to give someone a call and say, "Hey, are you guys meeting? Did anything change?" Uh, you know that. Yeah. That, yeah. 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 That's there's a there's a meeting two hours north of us here, and I've been wanting to go there for a while. It's ten o'clock Sunday morning. That's right. not really. For living two hours away, we actually last weekend we drove up there. I had written down the address wrong. Now, if I'd had a telephone number, 
Granted, it's possible that ten minutes before the meeting starts, the guy wouldn't answer the phone, but uh, there's a possibility. Or I would have called him ahead of time and say, I'm just wanting to make sure the meeting's here, and he'd tell me, you know, that's a you know, red building sitting back there and there, and I'd have found it, you know. Right. But, uh, but not having any contact information, it's not happening. So, uh, And uh, not every community either has central offices set up, and some central offices aren't very effective. I, I can vouch for that here in Kansas City. Not everybody has a central office that you can call and say, hey, uh, can you tell me about this meeting or whatever. And and even if you do, that central office might not necessarily know a whole lot about that particular secular AA group. But if you did have a personal contact, I think I could see how it could be set up. You could have some sort of a private database or something. I don't know where you could say, you know, you can have people with their their contact information to use for networking. You know what I used to think of a need for? This is the idea I had. It'd be nice to have a database of all the GSRs for all the agnostic groups in North America, maybe all over the world, and have their contact information and everything so that if there was something that we wanted to have done at the General Service Conference, we could get we could um, contact all of them by phone or email or whatever and say, hey, we got this issue going on. Let's all get together on and um, push for this at the General Service Conference. Or... Let's say, for example, like in Colorado right now in, in Denver, where their central office is giving them a hard time, we can all come together and put pressure on that central office or put pressure on that area assembly where that central office is located to put an end to that discrimination. So that was kind of an idea I had because you could put this database together. But you know what? Organizing anything in AA is just very cumbersome sometimes. It is, but I think it's a good idea. And and uh, my my experience, you know, back when when uh, when I when I had my controversy with Intergroup, there were actually several people there uh, that were agnostics that were part of the part of the Intergroup. We us we agnostics are very service minded people, maybe more so than. Uh, than AAers at large, and therefore I think that getting people together, like you were just saying, would actually have quite an impact. Because there's a lot of people that are DSRs that are that are uh, agnostics. I know. I think it's because we feel that there needs to be some change in AA, and I think that's why um, a lot of us are more involved. And we are kind of connected. I mean, it is pretty amazing that I can talk to somebody in New York, and I know what's going on over there. I know what's going on all over the world, but that's only because I'm involved with um, AA Beyond Belief and everything. But um, if I was going to be in um, Portland uh, next week, I don't have anybody's phone number I could call. Yeah, and that would be nice to say, hey, I'm, I'm going to be in town, but I'm not going to be there the day of your meeting. Can I get together with you? Um, something like that. Yeah, that would be that would be great. Yeah, if they don't do it at at uh, at secular AA, please consider doing it at uh, AA Beyond Belief. You know, so it, it, uh, in fact, I think it's a shame that we only have one meeting database. It, it'd be nice to have two, like we did for a little while there. It'd be nice to have a a PDF of all the meetings. You know, you can just go in and and scan down through it instead of having to go in and. Also, I noticed that the meeting list on Secular AA, it's got, it's a little funky. They need to kind of fix that because what happens is you have to sort for like the day, the time, the place and all that kind of stuff. But once you do that sorting and you press enter, nothing comes up. You have to refresh the page. It's kind of frustrating. And I they need, they need to kind of fix that. Plus, 
we need to have, it's great that we have this technology, the internet and everything, but there's still a need for paper too. And there's still a need for phone calls. I, I, I see that at work all the time. You know, at work, I'm emailing people all the time. But every once in a while, I just need to pick up the damn phone because some things are just too complicated and to put in an email or, or they won't get the meaning of what I'm really trying to say. And I think the same thing, same thing here. It's like, yeah, it's great, but sometimes email isn't automatic. You know, people don't respond right away or you don't have all the information on a website. Sometimes you can talk to someone, like if you're in Northern California, you know, there's a secular meeting, you know, three miles away. You can talk to that person and they have all the information in their head. You know, they know, yeah, we're, you have to go down this gully, you know, whatever. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. I hear what you're saying. Yeah. If I still had that article, I think I'm going to post it with the, with the podcast. If I don't have it, I'll have you resend it so that people can read it and see what, yeah. what you're talking about. Because as people, um, understand the need for it, then maybe they might, maybe something will happen. Yeah. Yeah. We really got to do that. And, and, and the, at the, uh, Austin conference, uh, there was no central email list of all the people that attended. Apparently, the only thing they had was the uh, was the uh, emails of the people that had paid with PayPal, and we had no get-togethers there. I mean, there were meetings and stuff, and I, I don't even know if, if there was such a need for so many meetings, because, I mean, you can go to meetings anywhere anyway. Sure. But, but what would have been really nice and what, what's needed in, in Toronto for sure is, is uh, that it be arranged that people from the same area can get together and meet each other there and uh and, and start networking i met a, i met a couple of people more or less by chance from from northern california in austin there probably were a dozen of us there and uh we really all should have sat down and had a meeting and talked about what do we want to do in northern california anything that we can do to network will make us stronger and to think beyond just the technology the the new technology but also think about the old technology and, yeah. you know, there's also, there's a couple of things too about technology. When it comes out to, to, when it comes to reaching the newcomer, a lot of people don't think about this. Okay. It's really great that we have all these websites and everything. But if you're a down and out drug addict or you're a down and out alcoholic, you don't have access to the internet. You don't even, you might not even have a job. There's a lot of people that are just out on the street. You, don't, you can't find the internet to find anything. So yeah. it's like you do have, and in some communities also, just because of poverty in this country, not every there's a there's a digital divide. Not everybody has access to the internet, so it's like there's still a need beyond just the inter, the internet to have boots on the ground, people that will take a phone call and go to someone's house or pick someone up and give them a ride, or to print out a meeting schedule and bring it to somebody. Those are still those are still needed. You know, we're not some of us are, don't don't have a whole lot when we first start out. Other issues too. You know, I, I don't go on Facebook. I've been told if you want to network in Northern California, go on Facebook. I'm just, I'm, I don't I'm just know about going. that. I'm kind of getting disappointed with Facebook. I don't know what's wrong with it, but I don't know. I, I go on there, but I, I, I think that people, they take on a different personality on Facebook sometimes, or they, you know, people have different impressions. You, you can have five people read the same thing, and every single person takes a different attitude about it, you know? I don't know. Facebook is always such a greatest way of doing things. I'm kind of down on Facebook right now. It's full of Russians. It's full of Russians spreading, <laughs> spreading misinformation. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, no, but it, it's back back to what you were saying. We we really need to have to have a way of contacting each other by telephone. You know, that's and 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 showing up in person. That's uh, that's that's good old AA, and and uh, we need that in, in secular AA for certain. So, live, I really enjoyed this conversation. I, I thank you very much for coming on and speaking with me. And I also thank you for everything that you've done for Secular AA, uh, all the articles that you've written, um, what you've done for AA Beyond Belief, and what you've done written on AA Agnostica. That stuff is really meaningful. Yeah, and thank you to you for, for having having me on here today, and uh, thank you for having the uh, AA Beyond Belief site. It's uh, a really good thing. Well, that concludes another episode of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. Thank you for listening, everybody. That was quite a conversation we had with Life J. You know, he wrote that article about the Sinclair Method some time ago, and it is the most popular article on our site. Life did a really good job with that article. And speaking of the Sinclair Method, next week we'll be speaking with Gary Bell. Gary was in the documentary One Little Pill, and Gary knows quite a bit about the Sinclair Method, having personal first-hand experience with it. A lot of good stuff coming up. I'll be interviewing Bob Kay about an upcoming book uh, that he has written. It's a historical fiction about Bill W. So, uh, hey, if you enjoy the podcast, if you can and if you would like to, please consider making a contribution. A small contribution of even a dollar a month would help quite a bit. Just visit our Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash AA Beyond Belief will use the money to pay for transcripts and other expenses associated with producing the podcast. Thanks again, everybody. Until we speak again, you all take care and be well.